Good morning. This is Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Bryce Dix. Viewed by most as a cultural centerpiece of the Southwest, Mexican gray wolves were almost hunted to extinction by the end of the 20th century. Now, numbers are slowly growing under the watchful eye of the federal government and environmental groups. On this morning's Let's Talk New Mexico, we're going to dive headfirst into why wolves almost disappeared from our ecosystems and explore the lingering conflicts between the agricultural industry and environmentalists that pose the question, should wolves be brought back to our wilderness? We're going to kick off the hour by meeting the federal agency that heads the Mexican Gray Wolf Recovery Program here in the Southwest and dig into the details of where the program stands right now, along with advocates of wolf reintroduction who want to see more lobos on our landscape. Then we'll hear from a rancher in southern New Mexico who has daily run-ins with wolves on her land. And finally, we're going to round off our show with a look at the parallels between the displacement of wolves and indigenous peoples here in the West. And of course, we want to hear from you. Send questions or comments to Let's Talk at KUNM.org. Tweet us with the hashtag Let's Talk NM or call in and we'll take your questions live on the air this morning. The number to call is 505-277-5866. That's 277-KUNM. Do you or someone you know raise cattle here in New Mexico? Have you lost livestock to wolves? What was your experience? Do you see wolves as an important part of a healthy ecosystem? Again, give us a call this hour at 505-277-5866. Tweet us with the hashtag Let's Talk NM or send us an email. We do that too at Let's Talk at KUNM.org. We have a slew of guests ready to talk this morning, but first I want to introduce Brady McGee. He's the Mexican Wolf Recovery Coordinator with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Thanks for being here with us today. Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm super glad you're here. Glad you're you're feeling okay. So now, Brady, some people might not be familiar with the Mexican Wolf Recovery Program. Can you give us a little background on what y'all do and what the goal is? Um, sure. So uh, the Mexican Wolf Recovery Program basically began in 1998 when we first started uh, reintroducing the Mexican gray wolf back on the landscape here in the southwest. Um, uh, basically, by the turn of the century, the uh, early 1900s, the Mexican wolf had been extirpated from the wild uh, in the U.S. And uh, in 1973, when the Endangered Species Act uh, uh, came around, then um, they started looking at species that needed to be put on the federal endangered species list. And mm-hmm. uh, the gray wolf was one of them that came up. And so... Um, they started looking around and being extirpated from the wild in the U.S. There was only, uh, they started looking in zoos and there was only two in zoos. Wow. And they they went, um, and they heard about some in Mexico and made an expedition around 1974 through 76 and went down there and actually found five and captured them and brought them back to the, uh, to the U.S. and started breeding them with the ones in captivity. And so everything we have now on the landscape came from those seven individuals. Wow. Um, I mean, they were um, virtually um, ex- nearly extinct. Mm. Uh, and so um, in 1998, uh, the federal government established uh, under Section 10J of the Act, uh, which allows for reintroduction of, um, of a population um, in a way that reduces regulations of the Act um, and being a top predator on the landscape that is going to have impacts um, on 
things like the livestock industry. Uh, we needed to reduce the regulations to more effectively manage uh, gray wolves. And so in 1998, they started reintroducing the first ones back here um, in southwest New Mexico and southeast Arizona. And so from that, um, at the end of 2021, we've grown that population uh, to nearly 200. Um, we have recently conducted uh, our annual counts for the end of year 2022, and mm-hmm. um, our numbers are, are the last seven years are showing the population is continuing to grow mm-hmm. uh, and do good here in the southwest. So this year we're going to have over 200 wolves um, wow. that basically uh, we've been able to establish from uh, nothing on the landscape. Well. Um, I was actually at um, that annual wolf count down in southern New Mexico in Apache Creek, um, and I mm-hmm. and you guys mentioned to me that um, you had this goal of 320 wolves, um, and you said we're going to have around 200. So does that mean we're kind of behind on that number that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife is setting? We're actually a little bit ahead of our goals because we conducted a 2017 recovery plan where we outlined um, objectives and goals within that recovery plan of where we needed to be population-wise. And Mm -hmm. we are um, above our goals according to our plan. And so um, we're actually doing better than uh, we expected. Well, that's good to hear. And you did mention wolves are a point of contention between, you know, environmentalists and folks in the agricultural industry. Um, And we're, of course, going to hear from them later this hour. But I'm interested, too, um, just personally, how do you navigate this tightrope between these two sides and when there's, you know, technically an obligation to both when you're a federal agency? Right. And so that is wolves are super contentious people. They're very polarizing and people um, either really love wolves or really hate wolves. And (laughs) it is a a dichotomy and um, a middle ground, a balance that we're trying to establish here Uh, and recovering wolves. First of all, we're trying to get them reestablished back on the landscape so that they're self-sustaining population. Um, and that is, according to our recovery plan, we here in the southwest, we've identified um, we need to reach at least 320 wolves uh, in Arizona and New Mexico uh, for uh, as an average over eight years. Mm-hmm. And so um, once we reach that, um, and we're also trying to grow a population in Mexico of about 200 wolves, and once we reach those goals, then we think we can take it off the federal endangered species list and turn management over to the state. And so, but in the meantime, um, wolves are going to have an impact on the livestock industry. They are going to uh, eat livestock. Their primary prey and about 85% of their diet is elk. And so um, they're going to be where the elk are. They're going to eat elk. But there are a number of occasions where um, livestock are um, basically an easy prey source, and so they will they will eat livestock. And so um, by reducing the regulations of the act under the 10J, we're more uh, we we can more effectively manage situations. And one of our primary goals is to reduce livestock conflicts. And so. Um, we work with a number of partner agencies on the ground, have people on the ground um, pay for all sorts of things like range raiders to go out there mm-hmm. and um, haze and harass wolves and get wolves away from livestock. Um, 
But we also have compensation programs in place so that once if a wolf does eat uh, a livestock, eat a cow, uh, and wildlife service, USDA Wildlife Services comes out and investigates that, confirms that it was a wolf kill, then the rancher can be compensated for uh, that livestock. We also have preventative measures or money in place. They can be compensated for uh, when they pay for things to prevent wolves from eating their livestock. So we're trying to offset, grow the po- Mexican wolf population and reach recovery grows, goals while at the same time offsetting those impacts uh, to the livestock industry out there. Yeah, well, you mentioned the federal subsidies. We'll ask a rancher about those later this hour. But I did want to ask you, um, last summer, environmentalists, including one organization joining this show a little later, filed a lawsuit over plans for managing the recovery of the endangered Mexican gray wolf. Uh, The Center for Biological Diversity and Defenders of Wildlife argued a new rule, which took effect on August 1st, uses the wrong metric to assure genetic diversity. And they also argued the rule, quote, prevents necessary expansion by limiting the area in New Mexico and Arizona that these wolves can inhabit. What's your response to that? And have any changes been made since then? Um, so, yeah, it's being the balance of this program. Like I said, you know, people um, were trying to find the middle road here. And with environmental groups, environmental groups think we are not doing enough for recovery. And the uh, livestock industry thinks that we're doing too much. And so um, what we have identified in the 2017 recovery plan as far as genetic goals and recovery goals is uh, what we put into our, uh, you mentioned the August 1st um, uh, 10-day revision that we just did Mm -hmm. last summer. Um, as far as goals for, and those are genetic goals for reach and recovery because genet- being from a founding stock of seven individuals, genetics is a concern um, and we are trying to maximize genetics in the wild. In captivity, we have about um, a little over 350 wolves in captivity over uh, 50 different facilities and because in captivity, we can say who breeds who. Our genetics are better in captivity, but in the wild, we cannot, you know, dictate who breeds who in the wild. So the wild population is a, the genetics are are lower than in captivity. So we are trying. Well, explain for our, our listeners why uh, diversity in genetics is so important for the wolf specifically. Um, if the wolf has two, if it um, basically comes down to if. Let's say um, if you have a situation where a brother and a sister breed and the genetics are very closely related, that oftentimes results in situations where um, the offspring uh, are, um, because they are so inbred, they're more susceptible to things like disease uh, and um, other things. And so overall, the survivability uh, is much lower, and so we are trying to um, boost the genetics. We're worried about things like inbreeding depression, where the uh, the litters are smaller when they are more genetically related, and things like that. Um, so we don't actually see that in the wild. Our wild litters are usually four to six uh, pups every year, and we aren't seeing any negative effects, but we are trying to minimize the possibility that there could be negative effects due to closely related individuals um, breeding and producing offspring. 
So what, what's missing from this conversation right now, too, that we failed to address is um, something called experimental Mexican gray wolf repopulation areas. Um, how do those mm-hmm. work? Uh, and, and, and explain for our listeners what, what they are. Yeah, I mean, so under Section 10J of the Endangered Species Act, when we establish a, a experimental population area, we have to draw a line on the map that says where this area is. And so what we have done in drawing the line on the map is is looked at the historic range of the Mexican gray wolf. And the historic range was pretty much south of I-40, um, all the way down through south-central Mexico. And because um, our regulations only apply in the U.S., um, and under Section 10J, we have to draw a line on the map. So we drew that line at, from uh, kind of at the northern boundary at I-40 um, over to the eastern edge of New Mexico, uh, down south to the Mexico border, and then over to the western edge of Arizona. And so that's the reason there are lines on the map is mm-hmm. because the Endangered Species Act Section 10J said you have to draw a line on the map. Okay. And so if a wolf moves north of I-40, um, it is fully protected under the Endangered Species Act uh, as endangered. And you can't. And so like a rancher cannot go out and haze and arrest if a wolf is attacking their livestock. South of I-40, because we've reduced those regulations to allow for ranchers to better protect their personal property, their livestock, mm-hmm. um, ranchers can do things like that, um, haze and harass. And so, um, uh, and so that is kind of what the, uh, the 10J means and allows us to do is to, uh, under an experimental population, is to um, basically try different things. Um, but also reduce the regulations of the act so that we can uh, more actively manage certain situations, especially when it comes to offsetting those impacts to livestock. Well, thank you, Brady. Um, in a moment, I'm going to ask uh, another guest, Michael Robinson with the Center for Biological Diversity, to chime in on this conversation. But first, we do have to go to a break. By the way, our phone lines are open. Call 505-277-5866 or tweet us with the hashtag Let's Talk NM to share how you feel about wolves in the wild. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Bryce Dix, and we'll be right back. Support comes from the New Mexico Philharmonic, performing Haydn Cello Concerto No. 1 and Mozart Symphony No. 38, Sunday, February 26th, 3 p.m. at Emmanuel Presbyterian Church. Information at nmphil.org. Please join us in thanking our business and nonprofit underwriters for their continued financial support. Because of their support, our mission will continue as your trusted source of award-winning local news and music. KUNM, powered by you. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA, we bring you a special episode from La Brega Season 2, a new podcast series from Futuro Studios and WNYC Studios about the Puerto Rican experience, this time told through music. That's next time on Latino USA. That's Latino USA, Monday mornings at 8 a.m. on KUNM. 
Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Bryce Dix, and our focus today is wolves in the West and the debate between the agricultural industry and environmentalists asking, should wolves be brought back to the wilderness? Have any thoughts? Maybe you've had run-ins with predators on your ranch or in the wilderness, or maybe you prefer to see more wolves on the landscape. Give us a call. That's 505-277-5866. That's 277-KUNM. We're also on Twitter with the hashtag Let's Talk NM. And before the break, I was talking with Brady McGee. He's the Mexican Wolf Recovery Coordinator with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We were just talking about Mexican gray wolf repopulation areas. They're experimental areas that wolves are placed in Arizona and New Mexico so they can breed and recover their numbers. I did want to ask you, Brady, um, we saw just last month a Mexican gray wolf wander outside of a repopulation area just outside of Taos. And then that was captured. That reignited this debate among environmentalists that have an issue with restricting the movements of an animal that travels over large areas we see. What would it take for wolves to be allowed to roam free once again and not to have these repopulation areas? Well, that wolf that was up, um, it was actually up about 15 miles east of Angel Fire, New Mexico. And we went... um, worked with New Mexico Department of Game and Fish, captured the wolf and brought it back down um, and put it in captivity for temporarily uh, to mate with a, um, a, a captive wolf. And then we were going to put it back out into the wild in April. Uh, and so it, it's basically the reasoning behind going and grabbing that uh, wolf and bringing it back was one is the, the genetics of that wolf are um, very low. Um, it is one of, that is pretty closely related um, to a lot of other individuals in the population. Two, it's up in an area where um, it's fully endangered under the act. And so, and it was hanging out on private land. Um, we allowed, um, we've given it some time to see if it would move back on its own and it wasn't gonna move back on its own. Um, it had actually established in an area that was on private land. And, um, and there's, you know, if, uh, there was high potential for conflicts for that wolf to actually wind up, uh, dead if it stayed up in that area and there's no other wolves up in that area. So, um, it's right now our focus of recovery, uh, is further South in the experimental population area. And so that wolf really wasn't, uh, the best contribution to recovery is, was to grab it and bring it back down here and put it back out in the wild further south. And so that's the reasons we did that. Um, eventually, once we reach our recovery goals and our target numbers, wolves will be able and we can reduce the regulations of the Endangered Species Act uh, in areas like northern New Mexico. Um, then, you know, they will be uh, allowed to uh, basically roam wherever they want. Uh, but right now our focus is to try to recover the wolves and southwest New Mexico and southeast Arizona. Mm-hmm. Well, that's Brady McGee. He unfortunately needs to go attend to other important matters this morning. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy, busy day to chat wolves about um, to chat about wolves with us. Thank you so much. Um, and with that, as I promised, I want to introduce Michael Robinson. He's the senior conservation advocate for the Center for Biological Diversity, an advocacy organization that focuses on the future of species of wildlife hovering on the brink of extinction. Hey, Michael. Good morning, Bryce. 
Thanks for being here. Uh, and I just want to ask you, I want to give you the space to respond to Brady McGee with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and his comments about the lawsuit your organization filed. What did you hear from him that you do or maybe do not agree with? Well, we do, we do have a very different perspective, and we're very worried about uh, the future of the Mexican gray wolf. It's important to go back a little bit. Um, Brady mentioned that there had only been seven wolves uh, that survived. Specifically, they survived a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service trapping and poisoning program that uh, existed in the 20th century, killed off the wolves in the western United States on behalf of the livestock industry, and then starting in 1950, uh, was exported as a foreign aid program to Mexico and uh, poisoned off most of the wolves there. So that's why there was only seven wolves that survived. And um, it's worrisome because contrary to what Brady said, that we haven't yet seen any effects of inbreeding depression, the genetic infirmities that uh, that stem from too many uh, closely related animals not being able to find mates with animals that are not related uh, with them, there actually has been very significant uh, problems due to uh, to inbreeding, mm-hmm. and uh, they ha- there have been smaller litters and uh, lower survival rates for the pups of more closely related wolves. What the fish and and that was that was um, corroborated and proved in a 2007 genetic study of the Mexican wolves. Uh, since then, um, tragically, more of the genetic diversity in the Mexican wolf has been lost under Fish and Wildlife Service management. But the Fish and Wildlife Service now feeds about 70% of the wolves in the wild. They Uh feed them. And that has led to greater fertility for the wolves and offsetting the the, um, problems from the genetics. But it doesn't solve the underlying problem. The wolves are still incredibly closely related. To give you some perspective, uh, those last seven wolves, the, the uh, scientists, geneticists, have several metrics for um, for assessing genetic diversity in a population. And one of them is they call it founder genome equivalence. And that is how many how, how much of the genes from those seven founders are actually still existing in the population. And the answer is 2.1 founder genome equivalence. It's as if the gene- well, it is um, that the genetic diversity from those seven animals has been reduced under Fish and Wildlife Service management to 2.1. And they've, it, that's ac- been accomplished by the Fish and Wildlife Service on behalf of the livestock industry because of political pressure that they have succumbed to um, through shooting wolves, that, including those that, that uh, are genetically valuable, shooting them, also removing them alive to, to captivity where oftentimes they were not bred in captivity, their genetic uh, potential genetic contributions were lost in those cases. Mm-hmm. And also, the Fish and Wildlife Service stopped the releases of captive wolves uh, to the wild uh, for several years. They basically had a moratorium on it. The last releases that they did of family groups, which is how they started this reintroduction, you know, packs. So these animals are, are social animals. They cling together. They, they communicate very very well among, you know, uh, one of the, the most impressive types of communication in the animal world. Um, and so they, you know, like us, they, uh, they need their families. The last releases of a family group that was well-bonded together from Captivity of the Wild was back in 2006. Uh, and then because of pressure from the livestock industry, the Fish and Wildlife Service stopped releasing family groups. And then starting in 2016, they started taking pups 
newborn pups in captivity uh, from their families and releasing them into the dens of other wolves in in the wild. But um, sadly, not very many of those are known to have survived, and even fewer are known to have reproduced successfully. Well, let me uh, let me let animals, me cut you off. You know, let me cut you off right here, Michael, uh, because I still have Brady McGee on the line and. As we're talking about genetic diversity, I want to give him a chance to respond to your comments about the fish and wildlife lacking in some of these areas. Brady, are you there? Do you, would you care to respond to what Michael is saying right now? Sure, I'm still here. And one of the things, and I didn't get to mention earlier, is we are trying to bolster the wild population through fostering, where we're taking uh, the captive puppies and mixing them with wild-born puppies. And we've been doing that since about 2016. And we have put out over somewhere around 78 uh, captive-born um, wolves that way. Uh-huh. And, and putting, doing, um, releasing these uh, captive wolves through a fostering program, the wild adults are teaching the young to be wild and raising them to be wild. Whenever we take a captive adult um, it, that has learned and is habituated to people and put that out in the wild, then they wind up on people's um, doorsteps, eating their dog food off their front porch, causing all uh-huh. kinds of issues um, because they're not used to being wild. They don't ha- uh, have that k- killer instinct to go out. They have to learn how to um, kill again. And so they cause all kinds of human conflict um, because they were born in captivity. Mm-hmm. But because we're doing the fostering with the pups and the pups, are raised by wild parents. We don't have those conflicts, but we're still able to get the genetics out there. And we have a, in our 2017, we did a model, our 2017 recovery plan where we did a model uh, to show what we needed to boost those genetics and how many captive wolves we needed to release every year. And so we, um, and also uh, recently put that into our 2022 10J revision of releasing a certain number of fostered pups into the wild in order to meet our genetic goals. Mm-hmm. And so um, we are um, actually a little bit above our the level of where we need to be at for those genetic goals. So we think we are meeting um, and boosting the genetics of the wild uh, in that way. Yeah. Well, Brady, I do um, have a question for you that a caller had. She couldn't be on the line, but she asked, would it make sense to use the wolves to control the feral cattle population instead of shooting the feral cattle, which the U.S. Forest Service is planning to do? I know the U.S. Forest Service is a different agency, but is that something that you all have thought about at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, about using wolves in a different way to control populations? I know you mentioned elk um, that tend to uh, roam more high-terrain areas in northern New Mexico, but have you thought about this, using wolves to uh, control feral cattle populations? No. And um, I don't think it is something that's going to work. Uh, we those feral cows have been down in the Gila wilderness uh, up to over 200 feral cows down in there, um, and our wolves basically um, we have a couple of packs in the Gila wilderness, but for the most part, most of our wolves are are north of the wilderness area, okay. um, and they don't. Um, and primary the primary prey of wolves is elk. And so we don't want them um, actually preying on whether it's feral cows or non-feral cows. Yeah. Um, we want them preying on elk. And so um, when these operations like this happen with the Forest Service and they go in and 
uh, basically kill the feral cows. We have seen in the last operation a, a few wolves move down and scavenge on the dead cows and stay down there a lot, but there's no evidence that they become habituated to eating livestock uh, based on scavenging because there are um, car- cattle carcasses across the landscape that our wolves scavenge on. I mean, mm-hmm. they're not very good predators. Um, they don't, by being that they're not good killers, and so a lot of times they, they're scavengers. And so when they come across a carcass on the ground, whether it's an elk carcass or a cattle carcass, um, they're going to eat it and scavenge it. And so there's no evidence after 20 years of doing this to show that um, once they eat a cattle carcass that they become habituated to eat a live cow. But um, we ask uh, and oftentimes remove cattle carcasses ourselves because anytime wolves are around live uh, cattle, then that there's potential for increased conflict, and inc- and so we um, and carcasses are going to draw wolves uh, into that area. Mm-hmm. They can smell it for miles, uh, for many miles, and so anytime wolves are around cattle, there's potential for increased conflict. Okay. Well, I did want to go back to Michael Robinson um, with the Center for Biological Diversity. We're talking about genetic diversity and it's lacking somewhat in the pool of wolves we currently have, according to um, uh, Michael. Uh, Michael, why is it so important for wolves from, you know, northern reaches of the United States outside of the southwest to interbreed with wolves from down here in the south? Would that help with genetic pools and and um, uh, helping increase um the life of these wolves that we're talking about? It would help. Um, and what we need is natural connectivity between the wolves that are soon going to be reintroduced to Colorado and the Mexican wolf, including what we need, and scientists have, have proved this in, in peer-reviewed studies, we need a population of Mexican wolves that is north of Interstate 40. Um, for For genetic reasons, we need more Mexican wolves so that every uh, every uh, Part of the, of the genome, that's not a technical way of putting it, but uh, mm-hmm. all the DNA that's, that is still available can, can uh, find a home in, in live wolves uh, as much as possible. But the thing that's important to understand is we still need to, to release effectively captive Mexican wolves to the wild. And there's been a very low known survival rate, a lot of disappeared pups um, in this, this method that uh, that Brady described. Uh, contrary to what, what we just heard, there's actually no uh, science that shows that wolves from uh, released from captivity, the um, the adult wolves are more likely to, as he said, put uh, eat dog food on somebody's porch. In, in the captive uh-huh. facilities, the wolves that are eligible for release are kept away from people, not fed directly by people. Um, and uh, there has been no uh, no actual numerical showing uh, that those wolves are more likely to be problematic than than pups taken from their parents and raised by by other wolves, many of which don't actually survive um, or at least are not seen again. So we don't know what their fates are. The other thing that's worth knowing about the genetics is that um, we just heard that Brady described that there's um, goals for recovery, um, and he mentioned. He alluded to recovery goals, but actually, and modeling, but actually, those are goals for how many wolves are released into the wild and survive for two years. Those goals are not uh, whether those wolves released in from captivity actually reproduce in the wild, which is, of course, how genetic diversity or, or you know, genetics in general can be passed from one generation to the other. Mm-hmm. It's a model of how many are likely 
to breed if they've been released. And that's really insufficient. And it's and that model's been criticized even if all if it's correct and all the wolves that they think will breed and survive and breed do, that won't be enough to um to solve the genetic problem. And we, again, we're down to two point one founder genome equivalents. That's as if on average every wolf in the wild in the United States in the southwestern United States would be as related to every other wolf in the population on average as if they were almost full siblings. Two founder genome equivalents would be like two parents um, in a in a normal population. So it's almost as if they're you know they're forced to to meet brothers and sisters. And there are some that are more genetically genetically diverse, but sadly not enough of them that have survived. So Fish and Wildlife Service needs to resume its previously successful releases of family packs, well-bonded family packs of wolves. There's no reason these pups should be taken uh, from their families. The entire family should be released to the wild, along with allowing wolves like Asha, the the wolf who was just captured, uh, she, north of Interstate 40, uh, she could have been the beginning of a wolf population that could have established north of I-40 if Fish and Wildlife Service did not have these regulations on behalf of the livestock industry to uh, prevent the expansion of the wolf population. It's very disturbing. Well, and, and I did want to say on the flip side of this conversation too, Michael, I want to cut you off really quickly, are the ranchers that make up a big, large chunk of the agricultural industry here in New Mexico. I did want to introduce our next guest, Megan Richardson. She's on the line from Beaverhead, New Mexico, in the middle of the experimental wolf repopulation area we've been talking about. That's north of Silver City and east of Elephant Butte. Megan is the owner of Slash Ranch. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate for you for being here. Um, for my first question for you, I did want to ask you, can you describe the layout of your land so our listeners can visualize where you are right now? Yes, sir. We are about 90 miles as a crow flies from TRC, the nearest populated town. Our ranch is compri- it's made up of private state forest, mm-hmm. um, and we do own the right to be able to graze on those properties. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, so you're talking about your grazing land has a lot of different types like BLM, private, deeded land, and some others. How does that complicate handling wolves when they happen to kill some of your livestock? Megan, are you there? Yes. Did you Did you hear my question? No, sorry. No, yeah, I just wanted to ask you about since you were talking about your land and it consists of a lot of different types, I was saying like BLM land, right? Private deeded land and some others. How does that complicate handling wolves when they happen to kill some of your livestock? So as the rule reads, um, we are technically allowed to protect our livestock. That is our private property on private property. Um, There is a question between some of these other groups and the ranching industry um, as far as state land, forest land that we pay to utilize on an annual basis um, if that is our private property and what the ownership is of that um, Mm -hmm. in that situation. But, um, you know, a little scenario that I've kind of shared through these last 20 years that we've been dealing with this and longer um, is, you know, no matter where you live, you know, you have a dog that's about five years old, you've had since a, a puppy, you've invested time, resources, emotional connection, whatever, and it's out in your backyard and 
some kind of predator comes along and starts attacking it and harassing it, and you have to just stand there and watch it happen. You don't have the capability to defend it or do anything. Um, that's pretty much the situation that we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a lot invested in our livestock, um, and to not be able to protect it or do some of the other things they claim that we're able to do is um, pretty disheartening, and especially living in America where we should be free, you know. Yeah. Um, mm. So that kind of maybe might help put into perspective how we feel um, dealing with wolves. Um, these animals are not wild. Um, I cannot iterate, reiterate that enough. They are raised in captivity. They are handled by humans. Even if they're born in the wild, they're still handled by humans. So they hear, smell, see us and our kids, and they come running thinking they might get a, you know, a handout. Um, so that, that, that is a serious issue also. They are not just in the wilderness. Yes, we do ranch in the wilderness, but actually most of the wolves are denned within a one-mile proximity of our home. Um, and have- so this morning we're talking about wolves in the West, as you can hear, and we, of course, want to hear your thoughts or questions. Our phone lines are still open. You can call us at 505-277-5866 to join in on the conversation. Sorry, Megan, I had to cut you off there. We need to go to a quick break. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. I'm Bryce Dix, and we'll be back in just a moment. On the next Alternative Radio, hear Manning Marable. By any means necessary, Malcolm X. That's Alternative Radio, Saturday evenings at 6, right here on 89.9 FM, KUNM, KUNM.org, Albuquerque. Our gratitude to all KUNM members for providing their support to ensure that news, as well as friendly companionship and much-needed music and storytelling, is available for all. The biggest share of KUNM's funding comes from you. Thank you. Please join us in thanking our business and nonprofit underwriters for their continued financial support. Because of their support, our mission will continue as your trusted source of award-winning local news and music. KUNM, powered by you. You're listening to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. I'm Bryce Dix. We're talking about the complex issues surrounding Mexican gray wolves this morning, and we still want to hear your thoughts. Do you think wolves are a valuable part of our forest ecosystems? Are you a rancher or an outdoors enthusiast? How do you feel about more wolves in your neck of the woods? Let us know. Call 277-KUNM. That's 505-277-5866. And with that, I do have a caller on the line, Ted from Rio Rancho. How are you doing this morning? I'm good, thank you. And uh, so what were your questions or comments for our show today? Yeah, I was hoping to hear just the personal stories of the Gila from um, the environmentalist, uh, I think Mr. Robinson. Michael Robinson, yeah. The rancher, Miss Miss Richardson, just how long they've been in the Gila, when they moved down there, and if they've seen any changes since the wolf. Well, I know Michael Robinson is literally looking at the Gila forest from his his window right now. Michael, what do you have you seen any changes in in the forest of the Gila and um, before the wolf reintroduction to now? Have you seen more wolves, less wolves? Well, in I, I live in the southern part of the Gila National Forest, 
And uh, we only have occasional wolves that come here, largely because of the control program that the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, has, has uh, basically limited the the uh, number of wolves that uh, that have have grown, and there's just not that very many in this this area here. Um, I have been here since before the wolves were reintroduced. I first uh, started spending time in the Gila National Forest in 1984. Uh, and then was able to uh, buy my home several years later mm-hmm. and uh, and move in. Um, so I so I've seen various changes, including in uh, some areas that uh, don't have livestock that have actually really improved ecologically. And I've seen more wildlife in those areas. But sadly, the areas that are c- continued to be severely grazed, um, there's there's just less wildlife altogether in there. But um, yeah. I look forward to spending a lot more time here and seeing more changes. <laughs> well, and I know Megan has seen a lot of wolves in her neck of the woods. Um, and I know you deal with wolves on a daily basis, Megan. Um, and there's some interesting ideas out there, including, you know, we heard earlier from Brady McGee about cowboys and cowgirls that can be hired to protect herds of cattle like yours, or even vibrant red flags strung up to scare off predators, or even livestock guard dogs that can protect your cattle. Do you have other uh, any other ideas on how to allow wolves to roam freely in your neck of the woods and at the same time protect your livestock? I don't know if you thought about it. Yes, sir. And, you know, I will tell you that we personally have tried every single one of those techniques to try to haze the wolves into the wilderness away from our cattle, and none of them work. Um, we have tried our hardest to work with the agencies to make this Um, wolf programs succeed. I mean, we want to see them succeed, but until they are actual wild animals, it's not going to happen. We can't be chasing them down with helicopters. We can't be giving them vaccines. We can't be giving them food. Um, They put out food caches. Mm -hmm. Unbeknownst to us, there is no cooperation, no communication with the landowners. Um, They go about and do whatever they want, whenever they want. Um, They don't notify us where wolves are and when within a timely period. Yes, we find out where they are about 24 to 48 hours after the fact. Um, But until, you know, they're actually wild, this program will not succeed. And to answer the gentleman from Rio Rancho, I cannot tell you how much we have seen the elk numbers decline in the last 20 years. I mean, we're generational ranchers up here, um, and we're in the Black Range, and the elk numbers have gone down tremendously. Um, These wolves are doing a huge damage and detriment to our elk herds. Um, We don't have run-ins with coyotes. We don't have run-ins with bears, mountain lions any of the other wild animals as much as we do the wolves. And again, I, it's because they're habituated. And you can't blame the wolves for being like that. I mean, if they hear and smell the smells of human and associate it with food and they're hungry, you know, they're going to come looking for food. Um, so until the wolves are actually wild and learn to survive on their own without any human hand or contact, I don't think that the program will succeed. Okay. All right. Now's the perfect time to bring in our last two guests. We got a ton on the show today. We have Sheila Hollowhorn, Hollowhorn, excuse me, a Lakota Dined actress in Almost Ancestors, a short film that illustrates the parallel paths of displacement experienced by Mexican gray wolves and indigenous peoples. Sheila grew up on the Navajo Nation. We also have Chief Judy Wilson, who joins us by phone from Vancouver, British Columbia, all the way up north. She's the chief of the Nescon Lith Indian Band. Welcome to you both. 
Hi. So, Good morning. This is uh, Judy Wilson. Thank you so much for being on the program this morning. So let's start off with you, Sheila. You're one of the stars of Almost Ancestors, as I said. Can you tell us about what the film is about and what your role is? Uh, yes, I um, I am the Hopi woman that plays in the film. Uh, it, the, the story follows uh, a young Hopi woman facing displacement, like you said, um, in a changing landscape, threatening her connection to the land and her family. Um, and that's where, you know, her, she has a kinship with the wolves and, and feels uh, connected to them because similarly what's happening to the wolves is happening to indigenous people, to their culture, to their, um, to, um, to a place that they call home, which is just mm-hmm. the land that we've belonged to for a long time. Um, the film goes on to tell about a journey of displacement of the tribal people and the wolves. And um, most of the film is in Hopi language, uh, but there is narration with English. And um, we have a Hopi, we had a Hopi cultural advisor on set, and I got to learn a lot about what, uh, I am Danette and I'm Lakota, but I, um, I portrayed a Hopi woman. And I learned a lot about what the wolf means to the Hopi people. And similarly, similarly, it, it coincides with the Lakota belief, with the Dunet belief, which is that the wolves are protectors and that, yes, they are struggling to survive just as we are culturally and as a people. Um, and, and that's just kind of a brief of what the film is about. Yeah, and, and the film is wonderful. I watched it. It's 15 minutes of your time. We'll have a link on KUNM.org. Chief Judy Wilson, you've been spearheading something called a wolf treaty through the Indigenous Global Council for a while now. Um, can you explain what this treaty is and what you want to accomplish with it? Well, the uh, Wolf Treaty is the most signed treaty amongst our tribal people. Wow. There's about 800 that signed uh, north and south of the Medicine Line, which is the border. And it brings together the tribes and uh, people to work together to understand, you know, more about the wolves, because as uh, Sheila outlined, we have the creation of origin stories. We have our deep history that uh, uh, connects us with the wolves and uh, to the Mother Earth and to the land. So it's really important, you know, about not just the conservation, it's about the culture, the revitalization of both the wolves and our Indigenous people, but also our language and our way of life and also the connections we have. Are, uh, we call them kasaltan in our language, which means relatives or all our relations. Mm-hmm. So we have that inherent responsibility uh, for caretaking uh, the environment uh, and the land and includes, you know, the wolves, which is the basis of the uh, wolf treaty. So mm-hmm. the, the tribal people, you know, they uh, went to meet with uh, Secretary Halland uh, several times, but she canceled. And the Global Indigenous Council, we produced a short film called Family, you know, to encourage Halland uh, to adopt the treaty uh, to revisit gray wolves under the Endangered Species Act. Uh, she did neither of that. And the uh, you know, she didn't uh, relist the gray wolf under the ESA. Some people think she did, but it was actually the tribes in Wisconsin mm-hmm. that sued the Department of Interior to return the protections, and they won in court. So she has she hasn't intervened to stop the Montana or the Idaho wolf calls, and it's you know it's. 
sort of like Wild West frontier era laws that now are, you know, that are aimed to reduce the wolf populations in those states by 90%. So we see that here in Canada as well. So, you know, we, we fight that as well. So these uh, wolf extermination bills uh, passed and signed into law, you know, they, it's just it demonstrates the, the level that they're not only hunting democracy to extinction, but they're also, you know, bringing back this, um, you know, terrible uh, fate to, to the same ends to the wolves. And mm-hmm. so Howland has really done the minimum and, Although triggered a 12-month review, you know, it's like here, it's like how many wolves are killed, you know, during that period of time. So the Wolf Treaty has influenced a lot, and uh, Corey Brook is about to use legislation and influenced by the Wolf Treaty. So the Wolf Treaty um, is really important uh, and instrumental in addressing a lot of these issues I heard you speaking about on the radio program today. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing, uh, Chief Wilson. Uh, I do have a caller from Socorro. Mary, how are you this morning? Uh, good morning. Can you hear me all right? I can hear you all right. What's your question or comment for us this morning? Uh, I, I just have a comment. I live in Socorro County. I don't live in Socorro proper. Okay. Kind of out near the National Forest. And um, my experience, I've had a couple of brief encounters with wild wolves and um, they did not seem habituated to me. I They ran away faster than, than their legs could carry them. <laughs> um, it wasn't a scary or threatening experience. And, I mean, I'm a hiker. I would want to know if there's, a, if there's a dangerous animal out there, and I just don't think wolves are a danger to humans at all. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're pretty benign, actually. And from what I saw, they really are beautiful, beautiful animals, too. I, I hope I see more. Yeah, thank Thanks. you so much for your comment, Mary. I... I cannot agree more than enough for that. I, I just think wolves are so beautiful and, and pretty. Um, I did want to go back to um, Chief Judy Wilson before we end the show in about five or so minutes. Uh, we did talk about, at this point in time, your wolf treaty has failed to get an adequate response from U.S. officials in particular, including Interior Secretary Deb Holland. They could be listening now. They sometimes listen to KUNM. What would you say to them to maybe get the ball rolling into their court to make this Wolf Treaty uh, a reality? Well, I think it's important about, you know, the what we're talking about with, you know, relisting, you know, to the Endangered uh, Species Act. I think that's going to be important, uh, as you just heard your uh, one of the, the ladies there just say, you know, it's, it's not the wolves that are, you know, are the ones that are behaving this way. It's really uh, government, you know, they uh, they mimicize and they say where the grazing areas are. Mm-hmm. Uh, that puts it right in the same area, uh, mountainous areas, the areas where the wolves are. Uh, again, you know, the government's making the decision, oh, the wolves, you know, cattle go here, the cattle go there. But really, uh, you know, they're sort of pitting them against each other, which I think is, you know, they need to provide the ranchers with other areas, you know, for the to graze open range. I think that's part of the issue because, uh, you know, do do everyone, does everyone have a, um, a save for the coexistence? Because that's a lot, in a lot of our teachings, that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, how are we going to all coexist? We can't. Uh, you know, hunt or we can't uh, have one uh, species uh, to go at endangered or uh, extinct. 
because 50% of the animals in the world are going extinct. We need to do everything we can to protect all, all our wildlife, including the uh, wolves. It's not uh-huh. the fault of, or, of the wolves, you know, that the government's making these decisions. And a lot of it isn't based on, you know, uh, where the science base is. It's really got to include the traditional. Well, uh, let, let me ask you, we're, we're, we're running really tight on time. We have about a minute and 30 seconds to the music to end our program. But I did want to ask a closing thought of you because I'm very fascinated by these parallels between, you know, we're talking about the colonization of the West, manifest destiny and the brutal ways indigenous people were forced off their land. What similar, uh, what similarities about the wolf and its experiences over the past centuries ring true to you, and how can we learn from them? We Really quickly, we have about a minute left. The wolf is a, you know, a vital role in all our tribal cultures. It's in our clans, our songs, our ceremonies, yet our voices are continue to be ignored. We can't see you know, the decimation of the wolves as part of the continuing war over our indigenous cultures. You know, we hold the reverence to Mother Earth. Uh, we also call reverence to all our feminine side. The wolves are born of the earth, and whatever the voice of the people are silenced, it's oppression. So the first people, our tribal people, you know, are always last to be heard. So the diversity of the tribal nations and demonstration of unity by the wolf treaty signers, the emphasis is clear and the present danger is, you know, stripping away the ESA protections from the wolves created not only the impacts of the tribes that, that you know, that we're seeing were... Uh, the wolves survive, but the majority, you know, we, we need to have the where the wolf is fully, fully uh, functional and thriving yeah. and coexisting. So that's what we're looking at with because the wolf is integral to those tribes and our clan systems, our ceremonies, societies. And well, I need songs. to cut you off right now. That is all the time we have today. We hear the music going above us. Thanks to everyone who called in to and to each of our guests. We can keep the conversation going on Twitter with the hashtag Let's Talk NM. We're also on Facebook at KUNM Radio. If you missed part of the show, you can stream it online or subscribe to the podcast. We have the, we'll have the show posted on this episode's page at KUNM.org shortly, along with the list of resources that were mentioned throughout the hour. Join us next week to discuss the health of the Rio Grande and its relationship with people and landscapes from north to south. Thank you, as always, to our hardworking team, our engineers, Marino Spencer, Megan Kamrick, screen your calls. The live tweeting was done by Taylor Velasquez and Kave Movad produced today's show. And a very special thanks to Daniel Montano for Manning Morning edition for me this week it was nice to sleep in i'm bryce dix this is let's talk new mexico on 89.9 kunm